Hey everybody, welcome to Leverage. I'm Ari Mizell. And I'm Nick Sonnenberg. And actually, it's quite appropriate that our guest today was a recent guest on the Last Doing Podcast. So we're bridging the gap by bringing back Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor. So Michael, thank you so much for being back with us. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here on Leverage. So without offending any of our previous guests, I do have to say that this was the first time where I had an interview. We did an interview with somebody and I immediately wanted to get you back on to keep talking about more <laughs> and made me regret that we only book half hour sessions. So uh, thank you for coming back. <laughs> of course. Um, and so for everybody who hasn't already heard the episode, I'm not going to go into a lot of background on Dr. Bruce, but uh, his newest book is called uh, Know Your When, right? The Power of When. The Power of When, sorry. The Power of When, uh, which really details how different people have different, what are known as chronotypes. So different patterns, sleep patterns, uh, activity patterns, energy patterns throughout the day. And you really can benefit quite a bit from knowing what yours is. But so we're not going to go into that, all that detail. I actually want to get into some more specific questions about sleep, different sleep situations, and, and sort of biohacks you can do to improve sleep. So uh, with that, do you want to start? I mean, cause I got like six or seven no, questions. I know, you, you, okay. My brain is bursting right. right now. So, uh, <laughs> so, so here's, this is the first one. Uh, and cause for some people who haven't heard the previous episode, this might sound like we're coming into a conversation midstream, but these are just the questions that I have. So the first one is how do you feel about people taking melatonin to help with their sleep? Okay. So this is a great question. Uh, and it's one that I get quite often. And so there's a lot of different things to think about when you think about melatonin. So first of all, um, 95% of melatonin is currently sold in an overdosage format, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. Um, if you look at the data coming out of MIT, Dr. Wortman, what he found was is that between one third and one milligram of melatonin appears to be what we need for us to reach plasma concentration levels for it to actually have an effect towards sleep. Mm -hmm. um, we don't need more than that. We don't need less than that. It's kind of it hits right. That kind of hits the sweet spot. Yet most melatonin that's currently sold is sold in three milligrams, five milligrams, 10 milligrams. When you say one third to one milligram, that's for anyone of any age, any weight? That's correct. Yeah. So what's kind of- be, How can it not be a function? So, so that's, why, that's where it goes from one third to one milligram, right? So one third is going to be for smaller, lighter folks. One milligram is going to be for bigger, heavier folks. That's kind of the range there. Um, which is interesting because, again, most of it is sold in three, five, and 10 milligrams. So the question becomes, well, first of all, why? Uh, so it turns out that Dr. Workman has a patent on the dosage. And so everybody who uh, didn't want to pay him his royalty fee decided to put it out at higher dosages because it was cheaper, okay. which is kind of messed up. Yeah. Um, and the question becomes, is that dangerous? And so unfortunately, the answer is we don't know. Um, in a lot of cases, higher levels of melatonin, uh, may, many people just pee it out. But remember, melatonin is a hormone. It's not an herb. It's not, you know, I mean, yes, it falls into the category of supplement, but this is a hormone. Like you wouldn't just walk down to your local health food store and say, hey, give me some testosterone, right? Or give me some estrogen. You would say, hey, melatonin, this is something I need to think a little bit about. The other thing that a lot of people don't know is it takes 90 minutes for it to reach plasma concentration levels. So most people take it like a sleeping pill. So remember, melatonin is not a sleep initiator, it's a sleep regulator, right? So it doesn't make you fall asleep like Ambien would, but it makes it helps with your circadian rhythms, right? So it helps realign those circadian rhythms. So when is it good? It's good for jet lag, um, it's good for shift workers, uh, but it's really not meant to be a sleeping pill. Now. When we talk about chronotypes, which I've talked about on the show before, there is a chronotype that melatonin would be good for, uh, and that's somebody that I call a wolf or a night owl. So I happen to be one. 
Um, I'm somebody who likes to stay up until midnight, one o'clock in the morning and sleep until seven or eight. And so my whole circadian rhythm is shifted. The easiest way to change that to a more sort of solar day, like work with the rest of society, which by the way, I'm not saying I recommend, is um, to take melatonin at like, let's say 9.30, which would mean that I would be uh, getting sleepy-ish around 11. So, so that 90 minutes is going to be critical to take it before, again, taking it at the right dosage. Problem is it's hard to find. Um, I've only found it in two places uh, at the correct dosage. Oddly enough, Trader Joe's sells it in 500 micrograms, <laughs> which is a half a milligram. Um, so that was one place I, I was kind of crazy. I, I, every time I walk into a store that sells supplements, I'm always walking around looking at the sleep stuff. And um, so they did it. Uh, kind of a, an interesting thing also to note is for parents out there, melatonin is not for children. And a lot of parents are using it in kids who have sleeping difficulties. And the reason that is, is what a lot of people really don't know is that high dosages, melatonin is actually a contraceptive. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, which why? Is, because which, you just can't get it up because you're asleep? <laughs> so it's more of a contraceptive for women than it is for men. Um, and here's my problem is I can't think of anything worse than introducing a contraceptive into a young female developing system. So I have lots of parents who call me up and say, I'm giving melatonin to my daughter or to my son to help them sleep at night because they don't want to give them, you know, Benadryl and they don't want to give them a drug. And my recommendation is not, I repeat, not to do that. Um, melatonin is by prescription only in Europe. Most people don't know that either. Uh, you can't just walk into a store there and buy it. Uh, does it have its uses? Absolutely. Uh, can it be used effectively? You bet. Uh, I use it for uh, when I do a lot of intercontinental travel and it's very, very helpful then. Well, that actually makes this even more scary to me. So the reason I even bring it up is I, I've known for a while that melatonin is not necessarily, it, it shouldn't be misused because anytime you're introducing an exogenous hormone, of course, you're going to you know, limit your body's ability to produce it. But right. um, I was walking, I was in Target last night getting some other stuff and they have their, this brand of gummy vitamins called um, Ollie. And I'm just looking this up right now. They have a restful sleep one and it's a gummy with two grams of sugar. So it's coated in sugar. And it has three milligrams of melatonin. Um, and it also has chamomile, passion flower, passion flower, lemon balm, and L-theanine. So three milligrams of melatonin in a gummy with sugar on it sounds like a really bad idea now. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, three, that's three times the recommended dose, number one. Um, and um, it doesn't, again, it's a regulator, not an initiator. So when you look at something like chamomile or L-theanine or even passion flower, those are more along the lines of initiators. And believe it or not, those actually don't really initiate sleep. What they do is they cause a relaxation response. So what they do is lower anxiety and allow you to relax. And then your natural ability to fall asleep has a tendency to come out because usually the people that are taking it are pretty fucking sleep deprived. So um, why, why do you care though to, to find places where they sell them in the 500, uh, was it nano? No, micrograms. micrograms. Like why don't you just buy a three and cut it into quarters or something? So you could. Um, some of it is actually enterocoded so that it's uh, extended release. So that's not going to work. As soon as you cut the coating, it changes the release factor. Um, I, I would tell you that in some cases, I've found two milligrams that I crack in half. And so I can use those. But I always like to, the, the biggest issue with a lot of people is, you know, when you start cracking things in half, you're really not getting the appropriate dosage. You're really not as accurate as you could be. But I mean, if you have some laying around, um, I would definitely, if you have a three laying around and it's a tablet, I would definitely cut it. One of the questions I actually asked you this after we stopped recording last time, but <laughs> okay. 
How does uh, like mattress quality, you know, it, there's all these companies like Casper and Ghostbed and all these things now that are really taking advantage of this mattress explosion, it seems like. Um, yeah. And uh, what I think I mentioned to you last time is that I've routinely found myself sleeping on the floor in front of like the crib of, you know, one of our babies or something. And I actually sleep <laughs> fine. So yeah. how much does that matter? The, you know, the, the, the $16,000 Hastings hand stitched mattress, you know, like, <laughs> Oh, this is one of my favorite topics. Um, So what you don't know is I used to be in the bedding business. So I actually (laughs) had my own line of mattresses. I had my own Dr. Bruce mattress, believe it or not, Dr. Bruce pillows, Dr. Bruce sheets. And I spent a year in development and developing my mattress. So I actually know a tremendous amount about this business. And here's what's fascinating. So first of all, there couldn't be a bigger scam business than the mattress business. Mm. All right. There are almost 48 points in a bed. So what does that mean for your audience? That means if you're buying a bed for $1,000, it's really got about almost $500 worth of profit in it. All right, just so that you're aware, everything is negotiable when you walk in the door at a mattress place. Um, and, uh, and mattresses aren't actually built for people. They're built for prices. And so as an example, you, what a manufacturer does, they say, we want to have a mattress at $1,000 price point. And so what we do is we take manufacturer margin out, we take um, retailer margin out, and then whatever dollars are left over, half of it goes to raw materials and half of it goes to labor, and they just configure it as many different ways as they can. So beds aren't built for people, they're built for pricing. And so that in and of itself is an issue. Um, There is absolutely no data to suggest that sleeping on a $16,000 Hastings is any better than sleeping on a $1,000 Simmons than sleeping on a $750 Casper. Okay. There's no data. To- I have the, the Casper and I, I quite like it actually. What do you think about the Airweave? Because I've been into their stores and I know that they were a sponsor of the Olympics and like all, they had all the Olympians sleeping on Airweave beds. So I was just curious to know what your thoughts on that are. Or I don't know like, a lot. Tommy. I don't know a lot about Airweave. What's interesting about Ca- what I can tell, I can tell you a little bit about Casper, which is kind of a, a, a fascinating. Is Casper's a marketing company? They're not a mattress company. Um, and so what they did was they took a 10 year old product and they marketed it perfectly to the exact right demographic for that product. And so Ari, how old are you? 34. So the reason that you can sleep anywhere is because of your age, right? You probably don't. Yeah. Well, most people kind of age like 35 and under, you can sleep on literally almost anything and your body will adjust to it. Um, The problem is, is once you start to get old, so I'm 48 and so I, and I have some low back pain. And so I need kind of a specific support, um, as opposed to a comfort. And so there's different ways to layer that into a mattress. And so I have, I require a certain level of support. My wife has four torn discs. Um, and has had them for years. And so we actually have to have her in a memory foam product because we have to have her stable. Because if she moves in the middle of the night and she twists or tweaks herself the wrong way, she's going to have an issue. So, you know, when you're thinking about purchasing a mattress, you really need to think about the first thing you need to think about is, um, do you have any medical situations that require a certain level of support, low back pain, upper shoulder pain, um, things like that. The second thing you're going to be thinking about is, um, position. What position do you start out sleeping in? Everybody moves uh, from position to position throughout the night, but um, it's very, very important to note that, um, as an example, you don't want a really soft, squishy mattress if you sleep on your stomach, um, because what happens is your back will, will kind of push in and sway, and so you'll get all of this tension across the lower part of your back, 
and that can be a real a real issue for you. So understanding position, understanding medical things, that can kind of help narrow down the field uh, for looking at different types of, of beds. Um, you know, if you kind of look in general, you've got three different categories, right? You've got spring, uh, you've got air, and you've got foam. And most of the spring actually have several layers of foam on top of them. Uh, so that kind of works itself out like that. But there are total foam beds like a Tempur-Pedic, there are air beds like Select Comfort, and then there are coil beds with foam on top like Simmons or Serta or Sealy or those kinds of things. Gotcha. Now, I'm just curious, have you seen the purple mattress? I have. Um, and that's also, go ahead. No, because I mean, their video with the eggs is like really that's, compelling. It seems it's awesome, right? Is it bullshit? Fantastic marketing. Um, it's not bullshit, but it's not what you think it is. So what they did was they used a very, um, very uh, thin, uh, more porous foam on the very top layer because that's their comfort layer. So you kind of sink into that and then the support layer comes underneath. It's actually not a bad design. Um, I'm not promoting them, but I would tell you that it's probably... Of, of the ones that are out there, purple's a little bit better than many of the other ones that I've seen. I haven't done a full analysis of them. I'm actually considering um, sitting down and going through all of the different mattresses and kind of looking at them layer from layer from layer and kind of trying to give people an idea of what's going on there. Uh, and then what about pillows? So pillows turn out to be almost more important than mattresses, especially for guys that are your age because what we're so remember a pillow is meant to just give support to your head and neck and the the basics of it is you want it to be basically you want your nose to be in line with your sternum and so if a pillow is too full it's pushing your head forward and that can cause respiratory issues because you can't actually breathe that well um, if it pushes your head too far back um, that actually could be good from a snoring perspective but not very comfortable 75% uh, of people sleep on their side. And so the big deal there is you want to have a pillow that makes up the space between your ear and your shoulder. Like you see what I'm saying right here? Yeah. You're going to want a thicker pillow there because you're a side sleeper than if you were a back sleeper where you'd want a fairly thin pillow because you want your head to kind of lay back. Um, if people are experiencing neck pain or upper shoulder pain, the very first thing I do is I change their pillow. Um, that's one of the easiest ways. Like don't go out and buy a bed immediately go out and buy your pillow. You should be changing your pillows about every 18 months to two years. Um, unless it's like a solid foam, memory foam pillow, those have a tendency to last it a little bit longer. But remember, your head weighs about eight pounds. And so the structural integrity of the materials inside the pillow will begin to fade over the course of time. You lose a lot of heat from your head, which means you sweat from your head. You have a lot of oils from your head. And so that all starts to seep down into the pillow itself. I know it's kind of nasty, okay. but but what happens is, is all that stuff in there starts to break down things like down and more natural related products. And so if you, if you're, if natural is your thing and you've got a cotton filled pillows or you've got down or things like that, all of that natural material is going to begin to break down within 18 months to two years. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about, uh, switching it every 18 months. I think, uh, I have some that have expired much. <laughs> they're yeah. pretty well expired. So you yeah. don't recommend side sleeping or sleeping on the stomach. It's really back where your nose is in line with your sternum or. Well, no, I, 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 I hope I didn't come across that way. So 75% of people sleep on their side. And so it's 70, 75% of people aren't doing it wrong. But if you look at sleeping on your back, it's the perfect position because uh, when you put weight across the skeletal frame, you've got the most surface area when you're lying on your back right? So you can actually lie back and all of that weight is evenly distributed. When you're on your side, everything is pushing to one side or to the other. And so if there's more than 37 pounds of pressure on your capillaries, which are the thinnest blood vessels out to the very end of your skin, it causes something called capillary crush. 
And so capillary crush is where the capillaries just get small, small, and then stop, and then the, you're, you're restricting blood flow. And so the reason that people move around so much is because they're side sleepers. Um, and so they're on their side for a little while, they get this capillary crush, and, and it, if it gets really bad, you get that pins and needles tingly feeling, right? And then you roll over to the other side, and then you keep, and so that's part of the reason that people go back and forth. So the next question you're, you're probably going to ask me is, well, why do so many people sleep on their side if it's really causing all these movement issues? So it actually turns out to be a spinal problem. So throughout the day, as we're walking around, we start to hammer down our discs, which are the, the pieces of material that are in between the vertebrae, and they have a liquid type substance in them, and they actually lose um, viscosity, and they actually become thinner and thinner and thinner as we walk throughout the day. And so believe it or not, when you wake up in the morning, you're about a quarter of an inch taller than you were when you went to sleep because they rehydrate. The easiest way to get them to rehydrate is if you're sleeping on your side and you bend like almost to the fetal position, it opens up each one of the vertebrae and allows those discs to rehydrate. So part of the reason that people sleep on their side is to rehydrate their spine. But the, the problem is, is that you have to, you know, you have to kind of shift around quite a bit. I have a bad lower back and I was told to sleep with a pillow underneath my knees on my back. Yes. So that has to do with your pelvis tilt. So men have less of a pelvis tilt than women do. So most women, their, their pelvis is actually tilted significantly in order to give birth. So, so for the vaginal canal to open up and for, because you know, the pelvis literally separates um, during the birthing process. And so uh, it's tilted. So that way the baby can kind of come up and out. And so what's interesting is if you put a woman on too firm of a bed with a tilted pelvis, the, the, her lower back stays tense. Right? And all the muscles that are, are there don't allow for a relaxation for those muscles to kind of recuperate. So when you look at low back pain, it's good to have a firmer bed, but by raising your legs up, specifically putting one or two pillows underneath your knees in particular, um, what you're doing is you're pulling all of that pressure up off your pelvis. And so that's um, opening up that part of your lower back, which is allowing oxygen to get there, nutrients to get there, and the healing process to begin. So um, my, my last question uh, is, because we started with melatonin, is supplements that you can take. And then previously, I've recommended things like kava kava, passion flower, and um, valerian. But, um, well, first of all, what do you think of those? But is there something that people can take that will help them just sort of get to sleep, stay asleep, that kind of thing? Okay, so this is an, a really interesting topic. So you named three things that I think we can spend a little bit of time on. So number one, kava kava. So there's a black box recommendation out about kava kava and liver toxicity. Yeah. So anybody who has any liver issues should not take kava kava. Um, that has to do with fatty liver disease more so than anything else, which by the way, lots of Americans have, uh, much less prevalent in Europe because their diet is so different but lots of Americans have fatty liver disease. And so kava kava has a tendency to interact there, we think, and cause liver dysfunction, and that can be a real problem. So for me, if you live in the US, I'm not a big fan of kava. The most data that's actually been put out has been put out on valerian. Um, and now the thing to remember is valerian is an anxiolytic. It doesn't put you to sleep, it lowers your anxiety level. And so again, because people are very sleep deprived, when you lower that anxiety level, it allows people to kind of coast into sleep a little bit easier. It turns out that valerian works best with hops. Uh, and yes, that's the same hops that you would find in beer. Um, but you can actually find valerian hops combination products that are actually very, very effective. Um, and then passion flower is an interesting one. Um, the biggest problem with passion flower is if you have um, uh, allergies to ragweed, grass, or pollen, you can actually have a reaction to passion flower. Um, so be careful. Um, if you have those types of allergies, it's obviously not something that you want to put in your system because it's not going to be as effective as you might want it to be. Um, believe it or not, I'm a big fan of magnesium. Um, yeah. I have 
Yeah. Um, a lot of patients who do well with it. I can't remember if, did I tell you guys my recipe for banana tea? Oh, you're going to love this. So magnesium is uh, kind of like nature's sleeping mineral. And uh, believe it or not, there's a ton of magnesium in bananas. Um, but it turns out that three times the amount of magnesium is in the peel of the banana. So what I do is I, I take a banana, take an organically grown banana, wash off to get off all the dirt or whatever, cut off the tips, cut it in half and leave the peel on and the fruit in it and put it in about three to four cups of boiling water, boil it for about three or four minutes until the fruit turns brown and then steep the water and drink the water. Sounds delicious actually. It's fantastic. If you like bananas, it's spectacular. You can give it to children, which is even better. Um, and um, it, it, it really works uh, quite wonderfully. You can so even add a little honey or <laughs> I call it banana tea. Um, but you know, you can, you, and you can serve it warm. You can serve it cold. People kind of like the warm feeling because the whole chamomile tea idea, you know, it, but people get sick of chamomile. I mean, there's some data on chamomile. It does appear to be effective for some people, but again, as an anxiolytic. So, um, and what are, what about marijuana? Huh? So there's, so when you talk about marijuana, uh, so this is very interesting because I've been doing a lot of research on this lately. Um, and so the number two reason that people are using marijuana is for sleep. Um, number one reason, um, on the medical side happens to be pain on the, on the recreational side is just basically to recreation. And so what's fascinating about that is most people don't know, or hopefully they do know by now that there are different strains of marijuana. So just like there are different varietals of wine, like the red wine, what's that? So indica would be more for sleep. Yeah, so you'd, you'd want to go down the indigo versus the sativa route. Um, and then you also, it turns out that how it's cured um, will uh, change levels of something called terpenes inside um, the, the substance. And so you want to be looking for things that have higher levels of, of particular terpenes um, and, and looking kind of down those indigo strains. It's very, very interesting. Also, if you have pain as an issue, you want to have something that's got a higher level of CBD, um, so the cannabidiol, because that helps reduce inflammation, which can actually help you sleep. Um, I have seen one or two CBD related sleep products on the marketplace and they look very, very interesting. Um, the key here is looking at the ratio between THC, which is more that psychedelic make you high property and CBD, which is the inflammatory. You actually want a lot more CBD and a lot less THC, um, because the THC will actually keep you out of REM sleep. And so you, you still obviously need that. So you, there's a ratio that kind of has to be achieved. And to be honest with you, I haven't seen anybody yet figure it out correctly. Um, so actually I'm thinking about figuring it out. Awesome. Yeah. Interesting. Awesome. What, so what would the right ratio be? Like what, what would be the ideal ratio of CBD to THC? So there's still some studies that have to be done to kind of figure that out. Um, but one of the things where there, there are different ones, but there are ones looking at kind of like a one to 10, one to 15, one to 20 ratios are the ones that I would start out with. Uh, one being the THC and uh, 10, 15 or 20 being the CBD. You want to have just enough THC to cause the relaxation, but not so much so that it's going to pull you uh, away from REM sleep. And then you want to have a decent amount of CBD to help with inflammation because inflammation is definitely something that's causing some sleep issues out there. Awesome. Well, I, that was that was jam packed with information again. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, tell people the URL where they can find out more about you. Sure. Uh, if people want to learn more about me, you can go to thepowerofwhenquiz.com and take my quiz and learn more about my book. Or if you just want to learn about me in general, it's thesleepdoctor.com. Awesome. Thank you. You got it.